choices can be difficult, uh, whether that's uh, choosing between political candidates or cell phone providers or menu options. Perhaps one of the places, the cases where I have seen choices made most difficult is in the ice cream store. Uh, whether it's 31, 21, or more than one, I have seen children, whose names will not be named, go through more agony than I have ever seen behind the curtain of any political polling place. So many options. So much pressure. How do you choose? Choices can be difficult, but the reality is it's not just the number of options sometimes that makes choosing difficult. Frankly, when you think about it, what often makes choices so, so very difficult and painful for us is just the simple fact that we're being told we have to make a choice. That we have to decide. Because that violates our sense of autonomy, our desire to rule ourselves. And so being told we have to choose just cuts right against the grain of that, and we can even find it perhaps so much as, or it would go so far as to say it is offensive to us, to say that you have to choose. Well, into that, right into the heart of that, Jesus speaks quite directly. We're going to look at that over the next few minutes together. So if you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, this is in the course of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. If you're trying to find the Gospel of Matthew, that is the first of the books in the New Testament, the first of the four Gospels that are uh, given to us there and found in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, those of you who have been here for some time know that this is something of a, a series within a series, a series within the Sermon on the Mount, within the larger series of the Gospel of, of Matthew. Uh, we're looking at verses 13 through 20 this morning. Matthew chapter 7. Verses 13 through 20. Hear now the word of God. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Would you pray with me? Lord, as your word says, Isaiah and Peter, all flesh is like grass and all the glory, all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And what is true and what is right is not formed by majority opinion or personal preference. It's according to what you declare and what you've revealed. And we are hearing that, though perhaps abrasively in our own response, um, we are hearing that here in this text. And so we ask that you would uh, give us ears with which to hear. Um, indeed, that you would help us to grapple with what you are saying. And may 
your word find its root within our hearts and bear fruit in our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. In a long series like this, it is really, really important to uh, stop from time to time, get your bearings, stop, be reminded of where you are, stop, and have a sense as to how the, the, the one part you're, you're within fits within the, the larger whole. So we're in the Sermon on the Mount. We're actually very towards the very, very end of the Sermon on the Mount. I just want to remind you, refresh you, if I can, just real quickly, how this fits in the overall schema of the Gospel of Matthew. So this is the early part of Jesus' earthly ministry. Uh, he has just really begun to get started. He has uh, begun to preach. Uh, when you look back in chapter 4, you can see a summary statement. I think it's Matthew 4.17 where he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's something of a, of a summary of his preaching ministry there. Um, we also see that he has called his disciples. Uh, he, they are traveling there in that uh, area that we know as Galilee, as I was referred to back in those, those times. And the word is spreading, and his popularity is growing. And one day, he, he sits down to teach on a mountainside, and northwest, this hillside, something of a natural amphitheater, there northwest of the Sea of Galilee, within sight of, of that lake, not really a sea, but a, but a lake, a large lake. And we see this in uh, chapter 5, verse 1, uh, the very beginning. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So that when his, his disciples came to him, the, the inference that Matthew is drawing for us is that while there are two groups, the larger crowd, and then but also his disciples within that crowd, this, he's mostly, this message, the Sermon on the Mount, is mostly to believers, those who are already Jesus' followers. That is to say, this is not, the Sermon on the Mount is not chiefly so much about how to become a follower of Jesus, but how to be a follower of Jesus. It is how to, how to live as a children of, the, the children of our Heavenly Father, as the citizens of the kingdom. It is, it is instruction on how to live in the tension of the times that we find ourselves. Uh, the, the tension in which the kingdom has truly come with the coming of the king, but it has not yet come in full. There's this tension. Theologians refer, have referred to this for years as the tension in the days in which we live, the years in which we live, as the now, the already, and the not yet. The Sermon on the Mount, a lot of this has to do with how are we to live now as his followers as we wait in the tension in these, in these times. Well, we're here towards the conclusion of this sermon, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. As John Stott points out, uh, thus far Jesus has spoken of Christian character, Christian influence, Christian righteousness, Christian piety, uh, Christian ambition, and Christian relationships. Chapters 5, 6, and 7. Now we come to the point of decision. Now we come to the point of decision. How will we respond? Based on what we have heard, how will we respond? What Jesus is, is making clear to us is, however, whatever you may think of the Sermon on the Mount, and, and even those who don't even believe any of it will say, this is magisterial as far as ancient literature is concerned. But what Jesus is making clear to us is that the Sermon on the Mount is not something to be put up on a shelf in, in a frame and, and, or, and, and admired, it is to be embraced. It is to be taken to heart. Or if I can put it another way, the king has come. The king has come. The kingdom is at hand. 
we must then hear and heed the summons of the king. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's forcing us in, in, into, into this conclusion uh, here towards the end. The king has come. The kingdom is at hand. We must then hear and heed the summons of the king. Um, he's forcing a choice here. He's forcing a decision here. Then and now. His hearers then, his hearers now. He's putting, a, 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 I guess you could put two alternative roads before us. We need to choose one or the other. Assess what it is that's before us. Choose. Make a decision between one or the other. He also uh, says there are two different teachers before you. Two different types of teaching are before you. Two different kinds of ideas before you. You need to choose. You need to decide. Before we get there, you may be thinking, well, wait, didn't you just skip point one? Yeah, I did. That's points two and three. Before we can get there, we have to deal with something really, really important. And that is our initial natural human response to what Jesus says and how he says it. And so what I'll, I'll put it this way. We need to clear the deck. That's an old Navy expression. Sailing ships from many, many years ago. This is where it originated from. When, when, a, when the crew of a sailing vessel was entering into battle, Everything that was loose on the deck either needed to be stored away or secured so that it didn't interfere with the action and motion of the guns or cause one of the sailors to trip over and fall. And so the deck had to be cleared. And, and what that means today in common parlance is, is that some important issue needs to be dealt with so that we can then deal with something even more important. And what I want to say here at this outset this morning is, my friends, we need to clear the deck. Because if we're honest, there's a lot about what Jesus says here and how he says it that we don't really care for, instinctively, just viscerally. Um, if, if we're honest, how we feel is that, you know, we're, a lot of us, many of us, maybe all of us, are, are, are tired of people being pushed off to the margins and ignored. We're, we're weary of the know-it-alls. We don't really care for brashness and arrogance from anybody. And we certainly don't care for the hurt and harm that oftentimes comes as, as fruit of all of that. And frankly, when you really listen and you pay, you know, at least the first impression of what Jesus says, he sounds really narrow-minded. He sounds narrow-minded. These sounds like the kinds of words, they sound like the kind of things that would come from the lips of a fanatic or an extremist. They sound exclusive, which is like the equivalent of a four-letter word in our culture today. It sounds exclusive. And I think we just need to own that and be honest about that. And then I want to just for a few minutes briefly, all right, let's, all right, let's talk about that. Let's sort of reflect on that for just a moment and maybe a basic principle. And that would be, one would be, or to state it simply would be, yes, great harm can come when people arrogantly stand for God. That's true. Let's just acknowledge it. That said, at the same time, there are cases, and it's every day, I'm going to explain what I mean in just a minute, everyday examples in our lives in which exclusive claims are not harmful, but they are actually necessary and right. And we need them. We need them. 
Okay, so let me hear some examples. You're at a wedding, and towards the end, the preacher says, Husband, you may kiss your bride. Now we understand at that moment what he means and what his intent is. He doesn't say, You may kiss a bride and just give the guy the run of the place. I mean, we, we would be rightly and justly offended by that, especially the, the, the woman in particular. Um, another way of, of saying that, you know, you, if, if you have put money down on a housing deposit, if you have a job offer and now you're moving, if, if um, oh, I don't know, you've got a hotel reservation or a car rental sort of thing, there's this understanding that the other side should be honoring the, the exclusivity of the deal. The, the, the shopping is done. You know, it's, it's settled. It's, it's you and them. It's the arrangement. It's exclusive. If you're a parent and you have a child that's sick and there's, you've been told there's no hope for them, no solution, no cure, no, no chance. And all of a sudden you hear of a, a specialist of some kind who actually knows what to do and they've got the cure. No parent in their right mind would protest, well, I want more options. That's too exclusive. <laughs> no, you would be rejoicing that there is an option. Besides death, life. My point simply being that it's not true that in all cases ex exclusivity hurts. It, there are some cases in which it can be right and necessary. Now, I recognize that what I, the way I just painted all of that may not be completely, entirely convincing. Okay, fine. I just would simply say consider it and don't just dismiss Jesus' exclusive claims out of hand. Think about it. Wrestle with it. Okay, with that, let's plunge in. Verses 13 and 14. He says there are these alternative roads. And there are but two. Two alternative roads that he puts before us. Two and only two. Verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are are few. Okay, so there's the warning, uh, enter by the narrow gate, and then there's the reasons that he gives for that, that warning. He paints a picture here. Two gates. Two gates. One is wide. It's, it's a simple thing to enter through that, that gate. You, you can bring whatever you want. Come on. It's, it's a wide gate. But there's another gate. And it's narrow. And you have to leave everything else behind. It's just you. That's all it's going to fit. Wide, narrow. Those are the gates. You have these ways. You have the, the easy way. Another way of saying that is the, the broad way. In our parlance, we would say that is the um, permissive way. That is the tolerant way. That path, that roadway, is as wide as that field and wider. There are no, no guardrails. There are no curbs. There are no signs. You get through the, that uh, easy, that wide gate and boom, go wherever you want. And with that in mind, it's not surprising there are many people found walking on that way. But Jesus says there's another way. Going through that narrow gate, there's a, then a hard way. 
And that word hard relates to some other words in the New Testament that have to do with opposition and persecution. Which is why it's hard. It's, it's the pushback that you experience for what you believe and how you live. And so because of that, because it is hard, is difficult, it's not easygoing, because of that, there are few found on it. Jesus has in mind from the start a minority. A minority movement. A persecuted, opposed minority movement from the very, very beginning. Okay? So you go through the gates, you walk down the ways, and you look down, and you see there's two an end. An end here, and an end here. The end over here, Jesus describes behind the, the wide gate and the, the easy way, the end there is death. It's destruction. It's the path of, of suicide, in essence, to choose that. It means that, that all is lost forever at the end of that gate and that way. But over here, this other, behind this gate and along this other way, um, looking there is this other end, and that is life. Human flourishing. Human fulfillment. Fellowship with God. Beginning now and going out forever. Forever. Those are the two alternatives roads. There are but two, according to Jesus. If you have a beef, take it up with him. Two, not a third. We have to take this seriously. I remember driving years ago uh, one night from Norfolk, Virginia to Richmond, Virginia on Interstate 64 going west. And uh, as you're, I assume it's still like this today. You're going along the interstate and you're seeing these, this signage for... Uh, a, a divider of, 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 of a, you know, the, the interstate's going, is a V. Yeah, I guess a V, or a T, or whatever it was. No, it really would have been a V. And um, you come up on this, and it's, it's sign after sign after sign warning you, alerting you, not just for directional reasons, but for safety reasons, because when you get up there, you realize this thing is divided by a steel frame concrete divider that ain't going anywhere. And that night, we came up to the point where we needed to make a left or a right. And as we got closer and saw those blue lights and that carnage of a wreckage scene, it was very clear someone had failed to choose left or right. Now Jesus is here speaking of the need to make a choice at a, at a much higher level. Much, much higher level. The stakes are so much higher here, as ugly as that was, and high as those stakes were, it's even higher higher here. He says again in verse 13, enter by the narrow gate. Now again, I know there's, there's this instinctive part of us, this visceral part of us that is uncomfortable with this. We would rather remain uncommitted. Um, we would rather remain undecided. We would like to leave our options open and not be labeled. Let me just say this as clearly as I possibly can. Jesus did not come to be sensitive. He came to save us. And so we need to grapple with what he's saying here. 
at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, this, this, this body of, of teaching that dare not just be admired but embraced. He is saying to his hearers then and now, there and here, you need to decide. You need to choose. You are either with me or not. There's not a third way. You are either in the kingdom or out. And there's not a third way. The king, the king has come. The kingdom is at hand. Ours is to hear and heed the summons of this king. Now he presses even harder. As though, you know, like, whoa. He presses even harder as he moves forward. Because as you keep reading in verses 15 through 20, it's not just, he says, you must choose between these alternative roads. He says, you must choose between these alternative teachers, or you could say teachings and ideas. And again, again, it's just two. One or the other. Let me read that again. Uh, verses 15 through 20. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Again, the warning and the reason. The warning is beware of false prophets. And then the rest are the reasons. Now, to communicate the reasons behind the warning, he, he makes very clear to us that there are real dangers. Very real dangers that we need to take seriously. And in that, he uses the imagery of a wolf. Now, in an agrarian community, such as where he was and to whom he is speaking, in that culture, everyone would have gotten this. The, the imagery and the starkness and the drama of what he's saying. Because the wolf is the natural enemy of the sheep. Sheep are completely defenseless against the ravaging of a wolf outside the protection of a shepherd. And so he's using this imagery of, of a wolf to help us understand the impact of their teaching, of, the, of, of their tearing into a flock, even if it's not physically. It's still going to have a, 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 a terrible, terrible uh, traumatic effect on, on that flock. And, and likely what Jesus means by that in the context is this. This is teaching that goes like this. Oh, it's okay, it's okay. The gate's actually not that narrow. Oh, it, don't, it, no, I know what he said. I know what he said. The way is not that hard. And life, either way. And that deception, that deception then creates a sense of false security. And deception is exactly what the wolf is about when you look at the way Jesus describes this and unfolds this. Because he, 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 infold, he uh, unfolds himself, I guess, or, or puts on an innocent disguise. He's not broadcasting the wolf, the, the false teacher. He's not broadcasting his identity and his intentions. And so... Um, he then begins to uh, feign what he is and feign what he's like and feign what he wants 
and, and, and moves in within the flock, just pre pretending and living as though he just belongs right there amidst them. Keeping up appearances, bright smiling faces, feigning piety. Walk, uh, well, I was going to say walking, no, faking. Faking the walk, parroting the talk, sounding orthodox, using the right language, maybe hiding behind in our culture, in our day, book sales or, or hits on a, on a site or, or credentials in, in, in academia or, or whatever the case may be. Um, it's a very real danger, very real danger. And so with that in mind, Jesus then says, here's some tests. Here's how you can know a wolf. Here's how you can distinguish the, the, the false teacher from the true teacher, the false teaching from the, false, the, the true teaching. And, and so here he then shifts the metaphors. He shifts from out there in the field with the sheepies to over here in the orchard with the trees. And he says very plainly here in, in verse 16 and then says it again in verse 20, you will recognize them by their fruits. And then in verse 20, thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So there's these, these tests that he has in, in mind. And, and I would, you know, probably maybe more that we could break it down. I'm just going to give you three subheadings you know, as far as how you might gauge the fruit, how you might assess the fruit. One would be character. Character. Or as Paul says in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If those things are in place, if the fruit is there, then the teaching is true. If those things are not in place, That teaching needs to be rejected. There's the test of character. There's also the test of just the teaching itself. Just examine it. Listen it. Listen to it. Just, just dig into it. Is it consistent with the essentials of, of the, the gospel message? Is it communicating over and above everything else that we are secure in the presence of God by grace alone? Through faith alone. In Christ alone. So there's the test, the, the fruit of the character, the teaching. I'll add one more. The impact, the influence that that character and that teaching is having on the people that are absorbing it. Are they growing? Are they flourishing in faith and hope and love? If not, that should clue us into something. Again, just like Jesus says earlier, there are these two alternative roads and you need to choose, you need to decide. Over here he says there are these two alternative teachers or sets of teaching. And I'm warning you, and here are the tests. And again, this is something we need to take seriously. This is not a game. This is not a game at all. I mean, some of us you know, have taken vacations already this summer or going to or maybe just have memories or can just maybe just imagine you know, what I'm, this picture I want to paint before you. Okay, so you go to the beach. And you see signs. And depending on what part of the world or what part of the country you go to, one sign at one beach might say, Sharks sighted. Stay out. Other places, but more common, would be Riptide. Swim at your own risk. Now, what do these signs assume? That the dangers that they speak of are actually real. It's not just telling a tale that there are sharks that will eat you 
and there are riptides that will drown you. And so then the warnings speak accordingly to those things that are real and present dangers. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's speaking to things that are real and present dangers. False teaching. That the church can be susceptible to. I mean, that's been the case all through history. Look back to the Old Testament era. New Testament era, even in Jesus' day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And on through New Testament history, and all through church history to today, there's nothing new under the sun as far as heresy and false teaching and half-truths and lies and deception. So, this assumes, the warning itself assumes that there's such a thing as the false teaching and the false teaching. What else does it assume? The flip side. There's truth. There's a standard. There's something objective that's not going anywhere. One other thing. So not just is it assuming, the warnings assume that the falsehood is real, that truth is real, but that, again, that this matters. That this all matters. I mean, why bother, right? I mean, if the shark is just going to nibble on you, if the riptide is just going to tickle your toe, what's the point of the warning? But if it will tear you asunder and pull you under, then maybe we ought to pay attention to it. So these things matter. These things really matter. Truth, biblical truth, works towards, remember Psalm 1? Human flourishing. Beginning now and going on forever. What does the lie do? Some of you have heard me say this innumerable times. Damaged doctrine damages people. This stuff matters. Just the essentials matter. Is there a God? And if so, what is He like? Origins. Where do we come from? Purposes. Why are we here? What's wrong with the world? How is it going to be made right? Those things matter. Those things set, form a foundation and set the trajectory for how we live. What you believe about the essentials sets the path for how we're going to live. How will we? What are our goals? What are our aspirations? What are our hopes? What are our dreams? How will we do relationships? How will we respond when things are hard and when things are good? All that matters. It's not a game. And so we have these warnings and the tests. And from none other than the king. The king who has come and has ushered in his kingdom and has said, you need to heed and hear my summons. Choose. Decide. Now we don't do very well with kings. Even as a nation. We don't have a very good history there, do we? We just celebrated the 4th of July, right? What was that about? Well, that went well, didn't it? That whole king thing. The Declaration of Independence from what? From who? Go back and read it. Even our own culture, we don't do very well with the rule of the king. Fast forward, not 1776, let's talk 1787. The Constitutional Convention. And crowds are gathered outside of the building waiting to hear what their representatives have come up with. 
And the story is told that there was a, a Mrs. Powell there waiting for Dr. Franklin. Benjamin Franklin, in case you don't remember. Uh, Benjamin Franklin. And Mrs. Powell says to Benjamin Franklin, Well, doctor, what have we got? A republic or a monarchy? To which Franklin turns to her and says these very sobering words. A republic, madam, if you can keep it. Now, that if you can keep it, that whole republic thing, the, the deal that the founders had in mind was assuming a few things that, that would stay in place, like self-government, like self-restraint, like self-rule, or as Oz Guinness refers to as the golden triangle of, of uh, faith and freedom and virtue, and those things have to stay in place for there to be self-rule. I would venture to say, we don't do well with a king. We don't do well with self-rule either. I mean, look at your life, look at my life. Let's look at just events recently in the last month in our own nation. Orlando, Dallas, how are we doing? Look at your last week, look at my week. If you could see a videotape, how am I doing? How are you doing? We don't do well with an earthly king. We don't do well with that kind of rule. We don't do well with self-rule. And now we have word, here's the good news, of another king. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. He laid down his law. You know what else he laid down? Himself. For those who know they cannot keep his law. Yeah, I know. He forces a choice. He forces a decision. You know what else he did? He freely gave himself to the demands of holy divine justice and love met on the cross. This is the king of the kings. This is the king whose rule can easily be documented and through all the annals of history and whose impact on this world is echoing forth all the time in our deepest longings and in our most lasting of stories and tales. That king has come. That king has come and his kingdom has been ushered in. Ours is to now hear and heed the summons of the king and decide. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you please help us to listen? 